0: TV is filling up with attack ads, positive ads, and a Senate candidate chomping on a Fenway Frank. With uh, just a couple of weeks to go until September 4th, the primary races are heating up here in Massachusetts. Matt Murphy, uh, with two weeks to go, many observers expressing concern about what turnout might look like for the day after Labor Day. How are the campaigns adapting?
2: Well that's right Sam I think every campaign that thinks they're in a close race at this point is worried about turnout on September 4th the day after the long uh, Labor Day weekend and a uh, one way one shorefire way to uh, reach voters uh, that your campaign is targeting when they're not necessarily at home is to go on television. And this week we saw a number of campaigns either retooling their messages and launching new campaign ads or going on TV for the first time. But there are two camps in this election cycle. There are those who can afford to go on TV and those that can't. And I think you saw Governor Baker make an interesting decision uh, this week to go up early, even though he's not expecting uh, to face much of a threat from conservative pastor Scott Lively in the GOP primary with a a positive campaign message that's branding him as a a ticket with Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito that will deliver integrity, leadership, and results, the narrator says, of the governor looking ahead to the general election. Up in the 3rd District, you saw Senator Barbara Latalian go on the air for the first time. New campaign ads from Rufus Gifford, Lori Trahan, Dan Coe also advertising up there. So everyone trying to reach uh, their uh, base voters and, and try and turn them out on September 4th. Is
0: there anything that you can glean from the substance of some of these ads?
2: Well, I think it's always a choice that a campaign has to make whether or not to stay positive and go negative. And for the most part, we're seeing a lot of these candidates stay positive, trying to deliver a message uh, for what they believe in and what they would bring to the office. But uh, in two particular races, I think you saw a slightly different tenor of some of the ads. One, in the U.S. Senate race, which is quite competitive, uh, you saw Beth Lindstrom, not on TV, but in a brand new radio ad Uh, Really trying to draw a contrast between herself and Jeff Deal and John Kingston in that race. And then, of course, you have the race for Secretary of State between Secretary Galvin and Josh Zakem, which has gotten quite nasty. Over the past week, both in a debate and now we're seeing on the airwaves as uh, they have uh, amplified their attacks with their message in each campaign running two different ads, one uh, promoting the candidate in a positive respect and the other one trying to take their uh, opponent down a peg.
0: Now, you mentioned, Matt, that the governor has gone up on the air before the primary. Uh, Now, Jay Gonzalez and Bob Massey are two Democrats running for governor. Uh, Do either of them have the uh, funds to get on the air ahead of September 4th?
2: Well, no, Sam. The two Democrats running for governor would be in the camp I mentioned that can't really afford to go on air, or at least even if they could afford to, it might not be worth it. The governor, according to the most recent campaign finance filings, paid $1.75 million to a DC-based ad firm the same day that he went up with this new ad. Uh, All of it, or at least a good chunk of it, probably going towards this first commercial. The Democrats don't have a fraction of that. I mean, the governor still uh, walks into these final weeks before the primary with over $6.5 million. Jay Gonzalez on the Democratic side has the most money, but at the end of July, he reported only 430000 I spoke to his campaign manager. They are not planning uh, to go up on the air with any advertisements. Instead, uh, trying to target their social media outreach to voters in places where they're expecting turnout to be high, places like the 3rd Congressional District in the Merrimack Valley where there's a congressional race, and in the 7th Congressional District here in Boston and Cambridge where Mike Capuano running against City Councilor Ayanna Presley, The Massey campaign in a much different position They have very little money, only about $80,000 left in their campaign account. Clearly, not enough to go up on television. They're also focusing on their digital outreach and social media in an attempt to reach voters that way. Thanks, Matt. Thank you.
0: He rose to the high ranks of leadership this session, but back in the district, Representative Jeffrey Sanchez is facing a stiff challenge from a primary opponent. Katie Lennon you followed Sanchez, the House Ways and Means chairman, on the campaign trail this week. What's the message he's trying to send to voters?
3: Well, one of the interesting things about this the whole situation is it's very unusual for a member of House leadership to face this kind of active primary challenge. Uh, the previous Ways and Means chair, Brian Dempsey, was unopposed the whole time he was in that position. And Sanchez runs with kind of the advantages of incumbency so even though he had this campaign event this week, Jeff Sanchez, the office holder, not Jeff Sanchez, the candidate, was also out at the Mission Hill Farmers Market later in the week to talk about the the Healthy Incentives program. But as you said, out on the campaign trail, he was in Jamaica Plain where he had gathered a group of supporters with kind of prominent community advocacy roles really to sort of defend his record, you know, calling himself the only proven progressive in the race, pointing to his legislative accomplishments that back up that label and the supporters who joined him spoke to that idea pointing to his work for marriage equality criminal justice reform the law that just got passed this year um, and the many years he spent trying to bring more flexibility to instruction for english language learners that's another recent law now sanchez's opponent his fellow jamaica plain democrat nika Eligardo, she hammers him over his ties to house leadership specifically Speaker Robert DeLeo, and the people who talked at this campaign event, they cast his role in leadership as a positive light. He's in the room. He's in the position to deliver. He's influential.
0: Now, Katie, you also spoke to Sanchez's uh, primary opponent, Nika El Lugardo, this week. What's her take?
3: That's right. I connected with her while she was also out on the campaign trail. She called me from her car when she was taking an air-conditioned break from a day of door knocking. She comes from the point of view that it's only worthwhile to have someone in the position of power If they're going to use it to stand up, to buck leadership if they need to. In her opinion, Sanchez doesn't have power of his own, but rather permission from DeLeo. She says he's aligned himself with DeLeo on issues where the progressive and black and Latino caucuses have otherwise diverged from the Speaker. And she says that the Speaker's values don't line up with the districts, that Jamaica Plain, Mission Hill district. And she's pointing to the failures this session of education funding reform and the Safe Communities Act inspired budget language as major issues. And, you know, one thing that was interesting, she said something to me that that evoked a classic campaign ad, the 1976 ad from Ed Markey's first run for Congress, which shows his desk out in a statehouse hallway because of a dispute with House leadership.
2: The bosses may tell me where to sit. No one tells me where to stand.
3: And now, Eligardo told me that she isn't concerned with leadership, that she doesn't care if DeLeo doesn't like her. And the worst case scenario, she said, is she ends up with a basement office. And here's her quote, is it? it doesn't matter where I sit, it matters where I stand and who's standing with me. So there's definitely a parallel there to that marquee line. And and whether that pays off for her, I guess we'll still have to wait a couple weeks to see. Gotcha. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Sam.
0: The first resort casino in Massachusetts is getting ready to open its doors to gamblers on Friday. It's been almost seven years since Governor Deval Patrick signed the Expanded Gaming Act into law, there has been legal gambling in the Commonwealth since 2015 when Plainridge Park Casino opened a slots parlor, but the opening of MGM Springfield will mark the state's first foray into the world of Las Vegas-style resort casinos. Colin Young has been covering the lead-up to MGM's opening in Springfield, so Colin... Uh, What is MGM planning out in Western Mass, and uh, how did we get to this
1: point? Hey Sam, so before 2011, expanded gaming had always been a cyclical priority on Beacon Hill. Uh, but it always faltered amid widespread controversy about its implications and the inability of legislative leaders and governors to align their priorities. The uh, The law, as you said, was signed in November 2011 amid lots of talk about the jobs that it would generate and the tax revenue that casinos would bring in for the state. The Gaming Commission voted unanimously in, two th- in 2014, June of 2014, to enter into an agreement to award the sole Western Mass casino license to MGM, and work has been underway at the sprawling 14 and a half acre site in Springfield's South End pretty much ever since. So, what does MGM have planned for gamblers in Massachusetts and those from around the region? Well, the $960 million MGM Springfield includes a 251-room hotel, complete with a spa, pool, and roof deck. A uh, Let's see, 125,000 square feet uh, of gaming space. That's about equal, Sam, to four average-sized grocery stores.
2: Oh, my word.
1: And filling that space will be uh, 2,500 slot machines. 93 gaming tables, 23 poker tables, and a high-limit VIP gambling area. You won't find me there. (laughs) There's also about 100,000 square feet of retail and restaurant space and 50,000 square feet of convention space. There'll also be a giant multi-level parking garage that'll be free for gamblers. MGM says uh, that its project generated 2,000 construction jobs and will support about 3,000 permanent jobs. The company is really trying. Uh, it was really positioning uh, its project as part of the broader revitalization of Springfield's downtown.
0: Hmm. So, if MGM is is framing this as a shot in the arm for Springfield, uh, what does the project mean for the state as a whole?
1: Well, the state has already collected an 85 million dollar licensing fee from MGM and stands to take in 25 percent of the casino's gross gaming revenue. Uh, Massachusetts has collected almost 250 million in state tax revenue and horse racing funds uh, from the slots parlor at Plainridge. Uh, and Gaming Commission Chairman Steve C- Steve Crosby says he expects MGM and the casino being built in Everett will each bring in between 75 and 100 million dollars annually. But one quick word of caution here, Sam. Yes? Late last month, the credit rating agency S&P Global Ratings warned that the growth of casinos and the possibilities of expanded gaming online, sports betting, those sorts of things, in New England uh, will... Probably boost state gaming tax revenue in the short term, but they warned that those gains will not be sustained.
0: Gotcha. The size of four grocery stores, huh?
1: Yeah, pretty big.
0: I remember when Super Stop and Shop was a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. A little bigger. Yep. We'll see you, Colin.
1: Thanks, Sam. State House Takeout is a production of the State House News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse Headlines, visit
2: Masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.